In this continuing series of industry podcasts for C-Centric, Chief Executive Wayne Bruce interviews senior management about the key issues in the healthcare sector today. First up, Wayne talks to Dr John O'Donnell, who's the CEO of Marta Healthcare. John, thanks very much for your time this morning. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you where you see the healthcare industry heading over the next five years. There are multiple answers to that question, obviously. Um, To pick off a couple of major themes, I think over the next five years we will have to adapt to a a short-term rise in the number of people who are available to work in the healthcare industry and then we'll continue the decline that we're on in the longer term uh, with uh, a massive rise in demand and a complete lack of staff in sufficient numbers or sufficient skills to deal with that demand. Mm. Um, so that's one major issue. I guess the corollary of that is we then have to adapt to learn how to do healthcare smarter and with fewer people. And uh, so with fewer people, for more people, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and uh, that's an interesting exercise in itself. Um, secondly, uh, there's, you know, we're doing this interview a couple of days after the federal budget and clearly um, there are in every federal budget changes to the structure and funding of the healthcare system and that will continue. Um, the longer term trends I think are that uh, um, we'll all be paying more for our healthcare and paying more for it out of our own pockets rather than um, through state or federal government pockets, although they will have to contribute more as well. Um, And hopefully some of the reforms in the National Health and Hospitals reform process um, might assist with uh, saving a few dollars in some of the duplication that occurs in the management of healthcare between state and Commonwealth. What, in talking about that, John, what's your view on the Commonwealth Government's National Health and Hospital reform process? Yeah, the process has been, I think, quite good and it certainly has engaged a lot of the healthcare industry. It's uh, certainly got the academics thinking about some uh, different concepts for funding the system. So it's uh, um, a little like uh, the the formation of Medicare where there are lots of reviews and reports and lots of uh, public discussion and lots of involvement of the general community in in defining expectations a bit. Again, at the time of doing this interview, the, we are in the draft report stage and awaiting the, the response of uh, the Commission or the Committee of Inquiry to uh, publish a final report and then I guess we have to wait and see if the government actually adopts it. Um, some of the reforms um, look quite uh, sensible. There's a lot in the report that no one could argue with. They're just sensible uh, commitments to Indigenous health and various other things. Um, not quite so sure about uh, the denticare um, model. I, I, uh, I think that's using a sledgehammer to kill an ant mm. and an expensive sledgehammer at that. Um, something needs to be done about um, public funding for dental care, but I'm, I'm not sure. I think that that reform's probably too far, um, too far too quickly and it's probably unnecessary uh, in part to address the size of the problem. Perhaps there is one other thing to add about the reform commission process and that's in the the uh, draft report's options about the longer term future and particularly the, I think it was called social insurance. Where basically everyone's got uh, a minimum private health, in, private style health insurance package and they can shop around. I think uh, introducing that element of competition into the 
into the system is probably a good thing. It gives the consumer the power to to vote with their feet, and uh, I think that would sharpen up the operational capacity of both public and private hospitals quite markedly. And John, being based in in Brisbane, what do you see as the big you know the big issues affecting healthcare in Queensland? Biggest issue at a macro level is just the inexorable rapid rise in the population and the overwhelming demand for healthcare services in Queensland and the ability of both the public and private sectors to be able to cope with the demand. The, uh, all of the big inner city uh, private hospitals in Brisbane are, are full every day. We're not all that far off the private hospitals having waiting lists. It's, uh, it's just a very uh, sort of overwhelmingly busy time mm. and uh, some of the hospitals are doing smaller scale redevelopments but uh, the margins in private hospitals are so slim that people aren't going to to do enormous investments to uh, to make big changes to private hospital infrastructure. Particularly, I guess, with things like the private health insurance rebate and the yeah. degree of uncertainty around yeah. policy issues like that. Yeah, well, you, know, you can toss a coin. As as the federal budget indicated, you can uh, make a... or plan to make a multi-million dollar investment in a new private hospital building and then find that private health insurance rebates change overnight. Mm. Um, it's uh, not a very stable environment in which to make large investment decisions. What contribution do you think that private and not-for-profit healthcare groups make to the overall health system? Um, I think the answer to that varies from location to location, state to state. In Queensland, the MARTA's got a unique position, I think, um, in providing services to public patients through massively large institutions like the Mother Mother's Hospital. Um, we also do quite a lot of work on behalf of the state government in uh, placing patients who are off public hospital waiting lists and have been there for clinically inappropriate times. Mm. Um, we run a brokerage service through a tender through with the state to place those patients in private hospitals around Queensland. That's been a very, very successful program and has seen a lot of people who had been on waiting lists for anything up to 13 years in one case um, getting surgery. And uh, yes, that's been a very good yeah. program. Uh, I think the other thing that this uh, non-government sector is particularly good at is uh, high volume elective surgery um, just as part of a public contract. Um, it doesn't always apply in every... NGO-based hospital in Australia, but uh, they're often not the major trauma centres, and that's the case in Brisbane, where PA and Royal Brisbane are the major trauma centres, and uh, to some extent that gives you a, an easier run at doing very high-volume elective surgery without cancellations, mm. and uh, you know, providing good service, short length of stay, good clinical outcomes, and very high volume. And do you think that the mix of public and private will change in the future? Oh, inevitably. Will it evolve? Inevitably. But, uh, but how and when uh, changes with every change in the funding system. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't change by a massive amount, but we've seen private health insurance participation vary by 15% of the population over the last 10 years or so. It's a lot of people. So uh, you know, various schemes that, that tend to blend public and private um, like the Surgery Connect scheme where, that I just described, um, I think are inevitable. And I, I guess it's not, it's not just about attracting people, but it's about retaining them. I know on a 
perhaps a HR front, you've had a lot of initiatives in that area. I don't know if you want to comment on those. Yeah, the, the structure of the mater is uh, is not all that unusual. And we have a what uh, you would call a generic clinical divisional structure with a senior clinician, a senior nurse, um, or midwife managing large divisions of the hospital. I think um, the uh, unusual features about that are that we don't expect those people to actually um, extend their role beyond their clinical skill base. Um, so they provide clinical leadership, not business leadership, and uh, not necessarily um, sort of corporate strategic um, leadership. Uh, they're there certainly in a very senior advisory role in, in those functions, but uh, you know, there's no point in taking um, a senior surgeon and uh, asking them to, on their salaries and with their time and with their skill mix, to draft a budget. It's just silly or even then to hold them accountable to a budget they don't draft. Mm. But getting their input into the business uh, on a regular basis at senior level seems to have worked quite well. We've, um, despite all the various changes in demands and awards and God knows what else, we seem to have been able to be clinically stable and financially stable for quite some time now. And in what competencies do you think are essential for today's senior staff in, in healthcare? And I'd Break that up perhaps into people that are in executive roles, perhaps corporate roles, and secondly, the clinical leaders that you just spoke about, whether you see similarities or differences there. I think for some clinicians it is almost impossible to take them out of the mode that they've been trained in, which is thinking about the next individual patient and get them to think about the next, to to think about whole of institution decisions. It's like in the clinical world, some clinicians just don't get epidemiology. They can't think in terms of populations. And so I think you've got to be careful about who you place in those clinical leader positions because a lot of clinical training really makes them quite unsuitable to be in a position where they're managing 500 to 1,000 staff and a 100 or $200 million budget. At the MATA, we've selectively recruited people who do have that ability to both be good clinicians at a one-to-one level, but also are seen as clinical leaders and can think on a broader strategic stage. Um, and we don't get overburdened them with uh, too much of the detail of uh, thinking about the day-to-day operations of the business side of delivering healthcare. They're there as clinical leaders, and, and that's the strength that we, they play to. So I guess on the business side, uh, that then means that uh, you need people who are clinically literate and actually understand the language of clinicians and hospitals and healthcare. And uh, so we've selectively populated the senior positions around the MATA with people who have clinical backgrounds but then have further developed and have further usually tertiary level education and experience in managing healthcare and managing clinicians. Mm. underlying all of that is you've got to be able to communicate together and uh, that comes back to having some shared idea that's well understood about what the organisation is trying to achieve. And just the last question if I could, if you were in a position to give advice to someone who was uh, perhaps starting out their career as a healthcare or aspiring healthcare manager, what would be your advice to them? Get as broad an experience as early as you possibly can. 
I think too many people who uh, finish up in leadership positions in the healthcare system have only had experience in either the public or the private system. And I think uh, if you spend too long in either of those camps, you get a set of blinkers that are just impossible to remove. So my advice would be to uh, get some experience in service delivery land in public hospitals, get some experience in the corporate world of the public system, uh, get some experience in the private for-profit world. Um, I think that uh, that brings with it a, a discipline that you don't see in any other sector of the healthcare industry. And uh, then many like me will finish up after doing both of those things, will finish up in the, in the middle position, which is uh, in the non-gover- non-government sector. Great. John, thanks very much for your time today.